This is episode 132 of the Stem Cell Podcast. You beta watch out with Dr. Jeffrey Millman. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. I don't know about you guys, but around this time of year, I'm thinking about diabetes and my liver. So, today, in a nod to that, we got Dr. Jeffrey Millman from Washington University in St. Louis, that is, on the podcast to talk about his research on the in vitro production and study of pancreatic insulin-producing beta cells from human pluripotent stem cells for use in cellular replacement therapy and drug screening. First, we got some exciting news. It's now even easier to listen to the Stem Cell Podcast. You can now find us on Spotify, where you can follow our page and be updated whenever a new episode comes out. And for all those iTunes listeners out there, don't forget to review us. Reviews make it even easier for other researchers to get queued up on this podcast. All right? All right. First things first, we got our roundup, but this week, in honor of our guests, we'd like to remind our listeners about Pancreatic Cell News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. Pancreatic Cell News summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in pancreatic cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Tuesday. Save time and keep current with Pancreatic Cell News. Subscribe for free at pancreaticcellnews.com. All right, guys, and out of the roundup, we got a few stories for you today. Like we've told you in the episodes leading up to this, we're focusing now just on the stem cell stories because we got general news elsewhere. Kiki's covering that in her podcast. We're going exclusively stem cells, guys. I'm excited. I think we're going to really focus in and delve deep into the science that's out there. First of all, I just got a technical note here. I see these papers and I'm like, oh man, these cells get, these stories get no press, but I could really use that method. So I want to clue you guys into, maybe you've seen it already. This is a story from Nature Methods, uh, one of the more underserved by the media, I would say, journals out there. Um, it's a story by Matthew Portius, who is at uh, Stanford University. And the story, it's titled Efficient Scarless Genome Editing in Human Pluripotent Stem Cells. Now, here's the thing. Uh, scarless editing. What is scarless editing? What it is, it doesn't leave a selection marker or silent mutations, okay, which can affect the phenotype, even if there's only like a single base change. You can get a phenotypic change. So, you know, the, the danger here with CRISPR, you know, CRISPR's been in the news a lot lately. It's coming to fruition, uh, for better or worse, in humans. So we got to pay attention to some of the risks here. And the risk with CRISPR and similar type nuclease-based methods is that when you're trying to introduce information with like a homologous recombination vector there that's going to add new or correct genetic information to the locus, you can generate uh, these kind of indels, okay? Let me elaborate. The the nuclease method, it cleaves, it nicks the DNA, and when you get this non-homologous end-joining process to repair it, you can, you can drop out a couple of base pairs there, and that leads to a point mutation or an indel. And it's thought that you can avoid this by using a homologous recombination vector that'll carry with it the correct information and be incorporated into the locus. But the problem with the current methods is even when you supply this template, you can get double targeting. Essentially, the same guide uh, RNA that targets that locus can then serve again to target the modified locus that you've corrected, that you've brought in there and introduced an indel. So in a pretty kind of straightforward, I think, but it didn't occur to me to use this method, but a, a straightforward method by Porsche's group here, what they did is they just essentially avoided this by using or mitigate this significantly by using a two-step method, all right? So just very basic, they take a uh, first step, uses a guide RNA that's specific for the, the locus that they're talking about, but instead of introducing whatever they want, the end product, they just introduce a, cis, a bisystronic selectable marker that expresses M-cherry, 
uh, fluorescent protein, as well as this truncated CD19 molecule, okay, under the control of a ubiquitous promoter, UBC, all right? So in the, the clones that get targeted and have the incorporation of this, of this vector, you get fluorescence, and you also get the surface uh, localization of CD19, which then you can use for sorting. And what they do is that after eight days, they do single-cell cloning analysis, and they, they are after the initial targeting, they sort by the CD19 to get all the cells that get it in, and then they expand them for eight days and clone them out. And they look for colonies that are either bright or dim. It's pretty binary. There's, no, there's either dim fluorescence or bright fluorescence representing double incorporation to both alleles or single incorporation. Then they take those and they get a second pass where they target using a, a, speci- a, a, a unique and specialized guide RNA that's now targeted not to the initial locus, but it's tar- targeted to the, to the locus as it's been modified to incorporate the selection vector. All right, And then when you target that, you can then replace that with whatever homologous recombination information that you want there and get the, your end product. Okay, And this avoids... This, the, the shortfalls, pitfalls of the classic method where you can get these repeated indels, all right? So a little technical note there that I think is really of high utility to those out there who have been frustrated like me with trying to generate, you know, tissue-specific, gene-specific reporter, um, trying to, you know, do knock-ins, essentially. So there you go, Porsches. Kudos to you, a simple yet effective method I'm sure it'll get used out there. Moving on to Kyo, Kyo University School of Medicine that's in Japan. This is a story from Yumiko Matsubara, okay? And uh, the reason why I'm talking about it is because it's in Blood Journal. I love the Blood Journal. I love the blood. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, this story also has a really important application, all right? It's about platelets. Um, platelets... I don't know, people kind of, the underserved, platelets are everything. If you want your blood to clot, you need the platelets. They're essential for the hemostatic plug, it's called our clot. Um, And platelet transfusions are widely used for patients with severe thrombocytopenia is the clinical diagnosis. But that can be caused by a range of things, including like cancer or other hematological malignancy, also, chemotherapy can suppress your blood cells so you don't have any megakaryocytes that make the platelets, and then you don't have any platelets. Your blood is thin, doesn't clot. You can also have immune disorders. Infections, there's also genetic inherited platelet disorders, all kinds of things. You know, platelets, you need them, all right? We need them clinically. There's an unmet need. Over 4.5 million platelet units were transfused per year this year in Europe and the U.S., all right, 4.5 million units. But they're dependent on donors. We get these platelets from people, from blood. And it has a short, sel- uh, short shelf life uh, in the U.S. It's five days, okay, and it's at risk for bacterial infection. And there's immune reactions that can come when you have that allogeneic effect, you know, donor, host. So it's a crucial unmet need. We need some more platelets. And platelets, they come from megakaryocytes, stem cells, uh, from the hematopoietic stem cells. They differentiate into uh, immature megakaryocytes, and then those further differentiate to mature megas, and then they shoot out a bunch of platelets, and then those are all circulating. Um, To date, we've been able to make uh, megakaryocytes, actually, from you know, blood, obviously, we can take it out of the blood and make it, or we can make it even out of embryonic stem cells, or induced pluripotent stem cells. There's studies showing all those things, but, you know, there's limitations. With all those, um, the hematopoietic stem cells are, you know, a a limited supply, and Embryonic stem cells induce pluripotent stem cells while unlimited. There's a lot of risk associated with that. So enter Yumiko. He comes in with this idea to get adipose-derived mesenchymal stromal stem cells. Okay? We're going to call those acicles. All right? The acicles were then, 
they able to differentiate for two months without introducing an abnormal karyotype. And when they're encultured in megakaryocyte induction media, they generated these acyclic-derived platelets, okay, after about 12 days of culture. And, you know, phenotypically, arguably, they look like platelets. The pattern of in vivo kinetics after being infused into mice, NSG, um, immunodeficient mice, it was similar to platelet concentrates that were derived from blood, okay? So it looks like these platelets may be bona fide, but I, I, I have a few doubts. One, I would say, is that they exclusively use this CD42, not exclusively, but primarily use CD42B to define these megakaryocytes. And I think that they could have been expan more expansive, maybe, in their definition. And uh, I would have liked to see that they can generate these uh, platelets and megas from like long-term cultured acicles. You know, the primary acicles may have a different degree of potency and differentiation potential. And hey, for all I know, there might be some contaminating megas in there, although I, I believe that they're very rigorous in mitigating any contamination from primary hematopoietic cells. But lastly, along the lines of differential potency, we had Pamela Roby on the show a while back talking about the MSC bucket. All right. And these acicles, they satisfied, this is quoting the article, satisfied the minimal criteria for defining mesenchymal stem cell by the International Society for Cellular Therapy. Okay. And what we talked about with Pamela was that all these things are thrown into this bucket as mesenchymal stem cells. It's very inclusive. And these cells should be defined by their potential or, you know, their point of origin or something. This inclusive definition of MSC, I think, is a bit dubious. So maybe I need a bit more resolution on this story from Yumiko, although kudos to you. I love the blood. I love your blood story, Mr. Matsubara, or Mrs. Matsubara. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Dr. Matsubara, I should say. All right, moving on, moving on. We got another story. This is pretty cool. Nature Communications um, from Ramanuj Dasgupta's group. Uh, they're in Singapore. All right, and this is a story about chemotherapy resistance. It's one of the major causes of cancer-related death. And the reason why is because, you know, fundamentally tumors, while we think of tumors, it's like, oh, it's a tumor. It's a bad clonal cell type. It's rogue. It's actually a tumor is kind of like an organ. It represents a complex ecosystem of cells that are residing in genetically and phenotypically diverse states. Okay? This is called intratumor heterogeneity, and it's been documented in a lot of stories at many levels, genetic, phenotypic. Um, and this intratumor heterogeneity allows tumors to harbor specialized cells within the tumor that have this tumor-initiating or this drug-resistant or increased metastatic potential. So there's this like kind of heterogeneity where all the cells can have differential potential, you know, negative, malignant potential, but to varying degrees. So, you know, in the in, in, uh, in, with the intratumor heterogeneity, it's kind of understood conceptually how you can get this chemotherapy resistance. This is like an evolving system, and then clonally some of these emerge and race out and metastasize or what have you. But in, the, in phenotypically homogeneous populations that don't display a high degree of intertumor heterogeneity, there's still evasion of the, the chemo. So how they mediate this uh, selective evasion um, in response to the pressure of chemo, it remains a really important unanswered question for all of these monotypic type tumors. How do we treat them? How do they adapt to the chemo? So um, the idea that emerged out of Ramanuj Dasgupta's group is that it was a transcriptional plasticity in these homogeneous tumors that uh, allowed for the evasion. We're calling that here a kind of epigenetics you know, diff changing the transcriptional, the transcriptome 
um, not necessarily micromutations, but changing the transcriptional properties of these cells can lead to their selective evasion on a clonal level. Um, and this is important because, you know, if you can identify the survival strategies adopted by these phenotypically homogeneous tumors, you might be able to target them, might find some targets, or might some, find some ways of reinforcing the effect of the chemo. So working under the hypothesis that it was this transcriptional plasticity, uh, Dasgupta's group working with primary oral squamous cell carcinoma, which has a five-year survival rate of 40 to 50%. Um, the patients are typically treated with cisplatin. What they did is they took these primary cancer cell lines and they used single-cell RNA sequencing to characterize the dynamics, the transcriptional dynamics, of four distinct stages of tumor evolution during, uh, within the context of cisplatin. So under the pressure of cisplatin as these little clonal uh, resistant populations emerge and also um, following metastatic dissemination. And what they found was that relative to intratumor, high degree of uh, intratumor heterogeneity where the selection it favors pre-existing drug-resistant cells. In the homogeneous, the phenotypically homogeneous tumors, cells engage in a covert epigenetic mechanism. And they transdifferentiate by varying their transcriptional profile. And specifically, this adaptation in the phenotypically homogeneous tumors was mediated by the loss of stem cell factor SOX2 with the concomitant gain of SOX9, which is, I think, a really important insight that they really put their finger on what the molecular mediators, you know, mechanistically, what's changing here? What are these uh, pioneer transcription factors? What are they um, activating? And, and I think the really important thing here is they, they found that this JQ1, this drug that inhibits BRD4, which is a, it's a, a mediator of the epigenetic switch. So if you essentially like shut down this epigenetic switching, you can um, reverse the drug-induced adaptation. So there you go. They, they found their endpoint. They figured out how these phenotypically homogeneous tumors can evade the chemo by altering their transcriptome with that kind of epigenetic mechanism uh, and showed that if you inhibit the epigenetic mechanism, you can kind of suppress this evolution of chemo-resistant clones. What they didn't do, and I would like to see, and I'm sure it's ongoing, is they didn't see if it actually reinforced the effect of the drug. You know, do the tumors get smaller when you put them in mice? I'd like to see that, but... Very good work, Dr. Dasgupta, Singapore. Love it. Oh, God, I love this one. Coming up. You know, again... This time of year, I'm thinking about the gluttony. And when, you know, there's nothing more gluttonous than the queen bee. Just lying around making babies. But, um, you know, they have this amazing mechanism in uh, some bees, a lot of bees. Uh, this epigenetic driver of queen development, the, the royal jelly. Do you know about this? The queen goes down and they get a new queen by, they let the one of the little guys don't. They take the royal jelly and then boom, they queen up. Well, you're wondering how this relates to stem cells? I'll tell you. You know, we have a lot of methods for maintaining pluripotency in stem cells. We've come around to all these pathways. There's the MEK pathway, GSK3 beta, and inhibitors thereof, and the, the, the leukemia inhibitory factor, the classic, the OG. Well, and then we have media, the teaser, the M-teaser, the E8. Everybody's making money off of making cells stay pluripotent. But, you know, there's recent findings suggesting that prolonged MEK suppression may have a detrimental effect on epigenetic and genetic integrity of mouse embryonic stem cells, to say the least. So how do you, you, know, how do you know that you're really maintaining the developmental potential of these cells? You don't. You don't. Well, you might, you might know. They show that they're pretty, they have good potential. But who knows? There might be some long-term effects you want to avoid. So why not? Let's go for another factor that can maintain pluripotency because 
why stop at 12 when you can have 13? Just joking. This is actually pretty cool. The best known, um, you know, I think, factors aside, there is a need for, for novel. And just, you know, basic science. A novel one is a good one. Um, and although it's, it's known as this epigenetic driver of queen development, uh, the functional component of royal jelly, it's called ma- major royal jelly protein one, but they also call it royal actin. So we're going to call it that because it sounds cooler. So royal actin, it's been shown to modulate other biological functions in, in, in different species even. So, uh, Growth stimulation, cellular proliferation phenotypes have been, respo- uh, have been noted in response to royal actin in mouse hepatocytes. And there's some other systems, too, where royal actin does some stuff. All right, so it's biologically active, not just for making queens. It seems to be conserved. But the scope of its effect outside of the queen bee has not really been explored, you know, notwithstanding this stuff I just said, murine hepatocytes. It hasn't been tested in pluripotent stem cell systems, okay, we'll say that, until now. So what they did is that they showed that this royal jelly, it can maintain pluripotency um, by activating a ground state pluripotency-like gene network, okay? And how they did that is they, they did this really cool, which I can't even understand, like structural analysis thing, where they took like this recursive analysis of this one motif, and they were like, is there a curve? Because there's no, like, orthologs, you know? If you look at the sequence of it, there's no, like, oh, there's a royal actin equivalent in the mouse. It doesn't exist. So they had to go to the structure and be like, okay, what looks like this? And then they'd overlay that onto this whole sweep of thing, and then they'd do another analysis and look at it again with the different resolution and all a bunch of stuff that I couldn't understand. But what they came to at the end, they were like, oh, snap! There's this thing. NHL repeat containing three gene is what it was called up to that point that structurally it's kind of like a a structural analog in the mammal of royal actin then they looked where is it expressed okay expressed at embryonic day 4.5 in the mouse embryo all right so that's just around implantation in the inner cell mass and epiblast huh what do you know then they cultured it uh, they cultured the embryonic stem cells with the, the, this NHLRC3 and showed it induced a naive-like state. Mm-hmm. So, and then a bunch of other stuff. I mean, they pretty much show it's a self-renewing factor. It's like LIF. It's like maybe even better. And uh, so they found it's a novel factor that can maintain self-renewing pluripotency in the mouse system at least. And what do they call it? They renamed it because... When you, you know, a gene's just hanging out there, nobody has assigned any function to it. I didn't know this, but I guess you can just go in there and be like, you know what? Now you're this. And what they call it? Regina, of course, because that's Latin for queen. So the queen bee in the mouse, it's a great combo. Royal actin has a pair. Oh boy. And we're moving on. This is uh, the last story we have for you. And it's apropos because, again, it's that time of season. We got our boy on today talking about pancreatic cells and applications thereof. Everybody's getting fatter. That's a real problem in America. Meanwhile, people are getting skinny everywhere else. Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you about getting fatter. During weight gain, these periods of prolonged overeating that we're in the midst of, they result in lipid storage in white adipose tissue. Okay? That leads to inflammation, cellular stress, insulin resistance, and, you guessed it, diabetes. All right? Well, coming out of Aaron Brown's lab at... Maine Medical Center Research Institute and Tufts University. This is a story in Cell Report. It's called A a Renewable Source of Human Beige Adipocytes for Development Therapies to Treat Metabolic Syndrome. Okay, so let's get to it. These new therapeutic strategies, they could address the health risk of obesity. It's focused more on 
brown and beige adipose tissue. Why? Because if you activate those tissues, it, it, it correlates positively with reduced risk for metabolic syndrome. And, you know, brown and beige adipocytes, the way they become activated is in response to cold, stimulated release of norepinephrine by the sympathetic nervous system, all right? And then they expend energy that's stored in glucose and lipids to generate heat. This is like a thermogenic process. So instead of storing it in white fat, which just leads to all a bunch of bad stuff, you can spend that energy in the brown and beige fat. Here's the thing. The brown and beige fat develops during the fetal period is permanent tissue. In beige adipose tissue, it's induced in white adipose tissue in response to cold and other thermogenic activators, but the, uh, the problem is that they're, they're very limited, okay? Um, that, that they're in the brown. It's really thought to only emerge in development. And um, the... The beige, they don't exp expand well outside of the body either, okay? But there is a really nice application of these cells that instead of, of being stored in white fat, you could get in these obese patients, you could either get, you know, the tissue itself, get more brown or beige tissue that do the thermogenic process, or you could get the secreted factors that they make. And there's studies in mice that have shown if you, if you transplant the cells, uh, brown or beige adipose tissue, you increase insulin sensitivity. Um, and that it prevents also high-fat high dye-induced weight gain and can reverse obesity. So, you know, there's that. It'd be a great alternative therapy. Um, but like I said, you can't get these things. They have limited expansion potential. Uh, so that's that. But there's this alternative approach, generate patient-matched, brown and beige adipocytes from induced pluripotent stem cells. And although it has been done before to generate these things directly, it's relied on exogenous green gene transfer or this like short-circuiting process where you get mesoderm to go directly into adipocytes rather than going through their natural progression through mesenchymal stem cell derivatives or intermediates. So here, Aaron Brown's group, they show this multi-stage methodology for generating highly expandable mural-like mesenchymal stem cells from induced pluripotent stem cells and convert those into adip adipogenic precursors and subsequently into beige adipocytes. Boy, so there you go. This time of year, we could all use a little bit more brown and beige in our fat. Maybe keep us warm. Also, you know, keep that glucose from going bad on us. For real. Burn it up. Don't store it. We got enough junk. You know what I'm saying? It's time to clean out the closet. Oh, boy. All right. Well, that's the roundup. And, uh, you know, we're going to get to the interview. Apropos, like I said, we're falling from this beige brown fat up into uh, our remarkable interview with Jeffrey Millman coming right up. But first... As research using pluripotent stem cells advances towards the clinic, there's a renewed focus on cell quality, okay? So you guys need to visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and to learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. All right, check it out stemcell.com slash cell quality. Check it out. Check it out. All right. On to the interview coming up. All right. Now we're on to our interview portion of our show. We've got Dr. Jeffrey Millman, who's the assistant professor of medicine and biomedical engineering at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Jeffrey Millman's lab focuses on the in vitro production and study of pancreatic insulin-producing beta cells from human pluripotent stem cells for use in cellular replacement therapy and drug screening. He developed a six-step protocol for generating functional pancreatic beta cells in vitro from human pluripotent stem cells called stem cell-derived beta cells. 
Um, and his lab is investigating methods to improve the generation and function of stem cell derived beta cells primarily by using biomedical engineering approaches to introduce and modulate microenvironmental cues that play an important role in beta cell development and function. The met- these methods are also being extended to investigate stem cell derived beta cells generated from diabetic patients, um, you know, using IPS cells. So, Welcome to the show, Dr. Millman. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. Please, uh, will you just start by giving us a bit of background about what kind of work you're focused on in your lab? Well, I think you gave a uh, great summary uh, of it um, during my uh, PhD, uh, which I was doing at MIT. I uh, got into stem cells. I was actually working on cardiomyocytes at the time, um, and through a uh, JDRF-funded um, uh, project I did at the very end of my uh, dissertation work, uh, I was introduced to the area of diabetes and cell replacement therapy, which is what I ended up focusing on during my postdoctoral studies at, in Doug Milton's lab at Harvard University. Um, at the time, um, the field had protocols for making various types of pancreatic progenitor cells um, and some types of pancreatic endocrine cells. Um, however, these cells, uh, while some of them indeed would produce um, the hormone insulin, uh, really didn't resemble the insulin-producing uh, beta cell, uh, both functionally and from a uh, transcription factor uh, perspective. Um, and so my postdoctoral work was really focused on um, developing the six-stage protocol uh, that you alluded to um, that uses small molecules and uh, growth factors um, in a specific uh, temporal stage-specific sequence uh, to be able to activate and inhibit uh, developmental uh, pathways that are important for pancreatic development and beta cell development in particular uh, to, in the end, uh, produce a cell uh, that we published in 2014 um, in the journal cell uh, that uh, much more closely resembled that of a uh, adult beta cell, uh, both, again, in the context of function uh, and in the context of uh, gene expression and transcription factor, tr- transcription factor expression in particular. Uh, so now that I'm an independent investigator at uh, Washington University, I've been focused on uh, developing new methods for um, improving the, these cells, uh, while they were indeed quite uh, similar to uh, adult beta cells, um, like in many other um, uh, cell types and organs uh, generated from uh, peripotent stem cells, they appear to be uh, quite immature versus the, the real thing. And so we've been focused uh, a lot the last uh, two years on trying to increase the maturation of these cells, particularly their functional maturation, um, and apply them to a wide context of uh, applications such as cell replacement therapy and disease modeling. Yeah, and a big part of that is this biofabrication. I mean, you're trained as an engineer, and I know you you have this story of uh, uh, 3D printing into these uh, stem cell-derived beta cell clusters. Um, And I read in the intro there that, to quote, by modulating parameters of a low-cost 3D printer... Uh, Etc. And I always wonder when I see these stories about about biofabrication and the printing, what what does that mean when you take one of these systems that are made to to work with inert materials and then c- try and conjoin them with this biological interface? Can you just give me like the the elevator speech on how how that works? Well, in the uh, biofabrication paper that we published um, uh, about two years ago as, as well. Um, that was um, a little bit of a different situation than normal uh, 3D printing. At the time, we didn't actually have a proper, quote-unquote, 3D bioprinter. And so um, in this context, we were interested in making use of a low-cost alternative that couldn't actually print cells directly. Um, And we were wanting to evaluate 
its utility in, in the context of um, basically being able to transplant the cells into uh, in the situation we did it in mice um, in such a way that uh, we would have macro pores that would allow for blood vessels to um, infiltrate the device to be able to provide um, oxygen nutrients to the beta cells and insulin to get into the blood of the mouse. Um, in addition to allowing for retrievability, because with the 3D printer, uh, we found uh, we were able to um, actually essentially 3D print a cage for these cells that we held in place uh, with, uh, with a fibrin gel. Um, and, and this basically, uh, the 3D printing approach here allowed for us to kind of hit on a few of these things that we thought was important, uh, vascularization and retrievability of the cells. Um, in this particular context, uh, this could have been achieved with things other than a 3D printer. Uh, 3D printer in this context, though, um, had the advantages of that we could make it very cheaply uh, and very fast and it allowed for us to test many, many different prototypes uh, before we settled on the one that we reported in the uh, in the paper. And with traditional uh, fabrication methodologies that can, um, you don't have as fast of turnaround time um, uh, with a, a prototype as we were able to do um, in the biofabrication paper. Uh, with that said, uh, we're thinking that it's an interesting case study in how somebody would go about 3D printing um, cells and tissues in general, but particularly in a uh, beta cell context, uh, one of the parameters um, that uh, became very uh, apparent that we had to take, in, take into account after actually making the device and loading the cells into it uh, was the issue of hypoxia. Uh, in this system, we were not prefabricating blood vessels. Um, and so there would, after transplantation, there would be a uh, lag um, in terms of um, um, blood vessel deliver, uh, blood vessel infiltration um, into the the graft, and during that time, the cells would experience hypoxia. Um, and so, again, using my chemical engineering background, we um, took our um, uh, took our device concept, um, did some finite element modeling to understand what the oxygen uh, concentration profile would be um, within the device with different ways of loading cells into it. Um, did some uh, in vitro study of the uh, hypoxic environment, um, well, more physiological oxygen, though in a cell culture context, would be considered hypoxia, but did uh, experiments uh, to validate the model um, ex vivo uh, before transplanting them into mice um, and seeing um, that indeed um, the model was correct and we were able to um, mostly modulate the distribution of the cells within the device in order to uh, minimize cell death due to uh, post-transplantation hypoxia. Yeah, and that's the thing, I guess, with these studies that is so critical. It's kind of a, a, a blessing and a curse with the paradigm there that you can use these cells. It's a cell therapy, but it's the product of the cells that is the actual treatment. So you don't necessarily have, this, have to have the cells integrating, right? They can be encapsulated or, or whatever, as long as they're pro providing the insulin and being able to respond to blood glucose. They can perform their function, but these these this has been kind of the boon um, for uh, this type one diabetes type therapies using IPS ES derived beta cells. But it's also been an issue, hasn't it, in terms of the inflammatory process? Although you can kind of put these things into immune privileged sacs, uh, I know Viasite's been talking about this for near a decade now. What are some of the obstacles? to getting those things, even though they can be immune privileged, how, what, what's, what's wrong with, the, why aren't they working yet, I guess is the question. Well, there are two interrelated problems that I think are the biggest uh, challenges in the field. Um, the first one um, is, is exactly what you said. Um, we have to protect any uh, transplants uh, from immune rejection. And in a type 1 diabetic context, that could be autoimmunity. Um, if you're using just one uh, cell line for all your patients, you have to worry about allogeneic rejection. Um, and there are approaches like the encapsulation approach um, that that uh, Viasite and many other groups are uh, are looking at right now, uh, which indeed um, 
allows for protection against the immune system, but again, introduces other uh, variables that affects uh, cell viability and the number of cells you put into a patient. And again, that's primarily driven by um, hypoxia of the cells within a uh, encapsulation device. Uh, encapsulation devices won't allow for blood vessel growth into the graft, and so you're relying purely on diffusion um, to supply oxygen uh, to the transplanted cells. And that kind of leads to the second issue here is that you have to protect the cells against the immune system, but you also need to deliver a therapeutically uh, large enough dose of cells to, um, again, have to have a therapeutic um, a benefit for, for the patients. Um, in the context of a uh, adult, we theorize that we would need about a billion of our cells uh, transplanted into them um, in order to provide a therapeutic dose of insulin. Um, and that's a large number of cells um, that you would have to transplant. And the more cells that you transplant, the greater the issue of hypoxia-induced um, death that can uh, occur. And um, this is really a big, a big problem in the field right now. And again, my uh, lab is uh, very much focused on, on this. And there are other groups, um, uh, some of which we collaborate with, um, that are um, focused on this issue as well. But I don't know what the answer is, um, unfortunately. Well, it seems like uh, some of these companies are still struggling. I know Viasite, they've been around forever, uh, and they pause their NCAP. You know, they have these two methods. There's like a direct cell method, and then they have the encapsulation. They, try, they paused the trial of the NCAP um, to improve the formulation. Yet, they just now secured $80 million in funding. I know also your boy, Doug Melton. I wonder if maybe you got a little piece of this, because you, you got a patent from your work there, or you're on the patent there, I think, um, but SEMA, a year ago this time, they raised $114 million. So it seems like the, the, the market, you know, the resources are there from a venture standpoint. Like, what, what, what are we on the cusp? Is all the money now coming in because do you, the therapies are really about to, to drop? Do you, do you have any insight? without betraying any intellectual property things you have in play? I mean, do you think that the money's starting to roll in now because we're about to see a revolution in cell-based therapy? Um, I, I think the answer to that is definitely uh, yes. And, and I think uh, a lot of that is due to um, the reports, uh, in part due to the how, how much the cell, cell side of the equation has, has advanced. Um, literally over the course of five or so year, years, the, number, the amount of insulin being secreted uh, per cell from stem cell-derived endocrine tissue or, um, or beta cells has literally gone up many orders uh, of magnitude. And I believe uh, the biotech industry has taken notice of that and realized that on the cell side, we're really close to um, a uh, unlimited supply of uh, pancreatic tissue and pancreatic insulin-producing uh, islets uh, for for patients, and so I think that that is indeed um, one part of it. Um, and I think the the other thing to keep in mind, um, and this is something that I spend a lot of time talking to my trainees about, so, so they can keep um, perspective here, is that um, companies aren't investing in this area because it is an area where we get actually help to lessen human suffering. There, there are a lot of diabetics and a lot of people that could potentially benefit from, from this therapy. Um, yes, in the context of a company that can maybe translate over to, to profits, but there are real life people that can benefit from, uh, from these therapies. And I think the market is responding to that uh, right now. Uh, personally, I'm quite uh, excited to see the um, large amount of investment that has been occurring in the biotech sector um, that, that you referred to, um, and I'm very happy to that you know we've been able to do um, um, uh, make a lot of advances in my own laboratory uh, again as, as an independent investigator now. Um, and I think the question still remains uh, exactly what is going to be the final formulation of a uh, cell device products um, that would um, 
actually be the key combination to be able to um, be transplanted into patients um, on a large scale, having large benefits in terms of glycemic control. Or just to throw an alternative out there, um, maybe the idea of it needing to be a cell device combination um, is incorrect. Um, with the advent of CRISPR in particular, um, there is a lot, this is still basic research level um, activities, uh, but there is a lot of interest in the field and genetically modulating um, a, a stem cells that we differentiate into beta cells um, in such a way to essentially um, cloak them from the immune system or otherwise make it so that they will not get rejected um, upon transplantation into uh, diabetics. And uh, again, that's still very early days. I mean, Capillation has been around for decades, but uh, this level of gene editing has only really been around for a few years. And it remains to be seen if maybe an alternative like that is a better approach. Do you think that would be coupled with cell-based therapy, or do you think that it might supplant it? And I ask because it's funny, you know, I've been in and around stem cells from, you know, when they were first arrived, and have, I've been privileged to see the evolution of the field, but, you know, it has been some time. I don't want to age myself, but it's been some time, Dr. Millman. And uh, the, uh, in contrast, it seems like CRISPR came out, and suddenly this guy has two babies born. Do you think that just the, the ease with which CRISPR can be applied may make it a focal point for cell-based therapeutic focus you know, that, that has supplanted? Researchers that were focused on cells may now be focused on alternatives that seem like lower-hanging fruit. I think that this sort of development is synergistic with both approaches. Um, I do believe that um, you know CRISPR editing um, maybe can be used as essentially a um, genetic engineering vaccine of sorts that could maybe be injected into an early stage type one diabetic um, to make it so they don't lose any more beta cell mass and then therefore would never need to actually have a transplant. Uh, on the other side, uh, you know, it could be used the way I was describing it uh, in terms of being able to, um, in co combination with a cell therapy, uh, to uh, transplant into a patient, not have immune rejection, and have um, efficacy due to the, um, uh, the functionality of the cells. And so I, I think it's not really a either or question here. I, I'm very, uh, CRISPR is a, a bit outside of my core area of expertise, but uh, from what, what little bit we do um, and what I understand about the field, I think there's a lot of promise here and it could potentially be helpful both for cell therapy-based applications and non-cell therapy based applications. In an ideal world, we would, of course, um, uh, prevent uh, patients from ever developing pathologies to begin with, and especially in the context of diabetes. It's much better to prevent diabetes from occurring in the first place than to go um, and, and fix it. But um, right now, we don't really have a good way of predicting when a patient will form type 1 diabetes in, in particular. And so we have to um, work with the technology our understanding um, and our understanding of patients um, that we under, that we have today in 2018. You know, maybe in 2030 things might be different, but we we just basically do the best we can with what we know right now. Yes, you know, I see that you were just last Friday at the uh, Sixth International Conference on Stem Cell Engineering giving a talk entitled Engineering Functional Human Pancreatic Beta Cells Within Cellular Aggregates. I wonder, it's unpublished, but you're talking to the whole world over there in L.A. Maybe you could tell us a little about, about what you're uh, working on. Uh, yeah, that's uh, actually uh, something I'm very excited about. And the um, paper we have written up um, about that work in particular was just um, accepted uh, this week. And so uh, your uh, listeners should be um, on the lookout for that um, coming out um, probably um, early next month is what I think the uh, schedule is right now. Uh, but just to give an overview of what's happening here, um, uh, I referred to earlier in our conversation that the cells that we were able to make um, uh, during my uh, postdoc in Doug Milton's lab, while they were remarkable 
remarkably similar to beta cells, they were immature in a lot of aspects. Um, and um, one of the aspects is um, th th that I care about the most is their uh, functional maturity. Uh, so in the 2014 uh, report, we did indeed show that these cells were able to do the basics of what a beta cell is able to do uh, normally, uh, which is to, under uh, conditions of elevated uh, glucose, are able to secrete higher levels of insulin. Um, however, um, a, a beta cell isn't like a water hose where you uh, turn on the water hose and squirt a lot of insulin and then turn off it, um, turn it off. Um, instead, uh, insulin secretion in a properly matured beta cell um, is able to control the insulin release in a dynamic fashion. Um, and this might be a little bit difficult to explain um, uh, over a podcast, but uh, essentially what happens when a um, a uh, mature beta cell is exposed to a high glucose stimulation is that the insulin, which is stored in granules within the cytoplasm of the beta cell, there are uh, a good number of those insulin granules that are basically ready to go. They're like uh, granules that are like kind of fighter jets that are in standby mode. Um, as soon as the cell senses that high glucose, a lot of those insulin granules get released. And you'll get a sudden spike of insulin that occurs uh, very rapidly after the high glucose stimulation. And the beta cells not in that situation are trying to basically uh, rapidly correct um, the, in, in their view, the hyperglycemia that they are uh, experiencing uh, to make it so that, you know, the, the, a, a person isn't going to, you know, take hours before the glucose levels return to normal. Um, if that doesn't happen over the course of 10 or 15 minutes or so, the cells are able to kind of maintain a uh, reduced than, than, than the uh, first response, but maintain an elevated uh, level of insulin secretion uh, for extended periods of time until um, they sense the glucose levels have gone back down to normal levels. Um, in the field, we prefer this as first phase response, that's the immediate high, high insulin release, and second phase response, which is a lowered um, but, um, but, but, but elevated versus basal glucose level um, insulin secretion rate. Um, so the our 2014 uh, reports, those cells were not able to show those correct uh, kinetics. And it's um, believed by many in the islet field that this is really important for um, having more precise control of glucose levels in a uh, patient. In fact, in uh, type 2 diabetes, this dynamic control is the first thing that is lost when the beta cells are becoming uh, dysfunctional. Um, and so um, in the, the presentation I gave at the uh, International Stem Cell Engineering meeting uh, last week, uh, we detailed our protocol for um, how we're able to now make cells that have this correct dynamic function of uh, first phase in a a second phase uh, insulin secretion. Um, we were able to further go on and transplant these into um, glucose intolerant mice and within 10 days were able to restore their glucose tolerance to match that of the non-diabetic mice that were also in the cohort. And so we're thinking that uh, these sorts of improvements are, are quite important in terms of helping to um, enhance the cell therapy applications um, of our cells. Well, you heard it here, folks. Accepted. Look out for that early next month. You say early in the new year, you're thinking? Yes. All right. Well, we heard it here second, I guess. You, you told the world over there in, in, in L.A. But You mentioned um, type 2 diabetes. What's the, you know, everyone talks about type 1 because it's very sympathetic. But, you know, in type 2, I guess, you know, there's much I don't want to say greater, but there's a huge clinical load looming there just because of the American lifestyle. What is, are these therapies applicable? Are any of these, are aspects of them applicable for type 2? That depends on uh, which endocrinologist you talk to. I actually oftentimes ask that question of endocrinologists, and I've gotten uh, responses um, from uh, basically um, both extremes of definitely yes and definitely no. I mean, I'm um, an engineer and a stem cell biologist uh, first and foremost, and so I uh, look to my endocrinology colleagues in order to help me understand the applicability um, with questions just like what you proposed to me. 
me. Uh, the argument uh, from, from at least a cell therapy perspective um, is that um, for many type 2 diabetics, uh, the issue is insulin resistance and if you were simply able to transplant sufficiently high numbers of beta cells, you would be able to overcome this level of, of insulin resistance. Um, the engineer in me um, doubts that a little bit because uh, I mentioned that you know we need about a billion beta cells for um, uh, therapy in a type 1 diabetic. That's under a non-insulin resistant case, and so if you had to go up to, which we don't know how to do quite yet, but if you go up to 2 billion or 3 billion cells, that just makes the problem um, even more complicated. Uh, there are other um, uh, type, type 2 diabetic patients that um, don't necessarily have high or any levels of insulin resistance. Um, I've uh, talked to a few people about this. It's apparently quite prevalent in um, people of East Asian descent. Um, and in those situations where insulin resistance is low or non-existent, I think that yes, indeed, um, that is a, a clear area where cell therapy can be uh, useful. Um, however, I think that uh, more in the short term, what a stem cell-derived beta cell or stem cell-derived islet would be um, able to do for the type 2 diabetic patient population is being a new platform for screening new uh, compounds um, to be able to um, either protect or enhance the function of a uh, patient's own uh, beta cells. Um, and I think in general, drug screening and disease modeling um, don't quite get as much attention in the field as the uh, cell therapy uh, side of things. Cell therapy is, um, can be quite uh, headlight catching and indeed is very promising and I'm very excited about what's going on there. But I don't think we, sh we as scientists shouldn't lose um, perspective on um, all the various applications of uh, our work in stem cell-derived beta cells in, in particular. And I think that um, disease modeling is something uh, that there's been some reports on, um, but um, I think is right now underserved in the field. And I think that's where maybe um, our new protocol for having cells that can perform proper dynamic function uh, really comes into play here. I mean, I mentioned that uh, type 2 diabetics um, oftentimes one of the first features um, in terms of their beta cell function that can be seen is loss of dynamic function. Um, before, uh, we didn't have a stem cell model that actually had dynamic instant secretion, but now that we can actually do that, um, that becomes, I think, a very uh, interesting drug tar target um, for um, drug screeners. Mm -hmm. Yes, the many worlds of stem cells colliding, aggregating towards therapeutic ends. Um, to take a step back from that, the science, the medicine, talk about you as a human being. Dr. Millman, what are you reading right now that's not scientific? Can you share with us? I haven't read a book since I became a faculty member, <laughs> I am afraid to say. Um, <laughs> A lot of my reading nowadays are uh, my trainee's work, or rereading my own work, or NIH RFAs. Oh, I boy. think that the, the last book I read towards the end of my postdoc was, this is a bit of an old book at the time, but I still find it interesting, um, is uh, Freakonomics. Hmm. A real scientist. The numbers <laughs> that drive you. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I've seen, I read that one. That's a great book. And, and while I have no economics uh, training, um, I think the way they present problems and discuss um, their scientific approaches towards economic and social problems, I, I thought really kind of meshed well with my traditional engineering training, and I found it to be very, uh, very entertaining. All right, all right, here we go. Maybe not, not what you're doing now. This is from your past. Maybe the, the skeletons in your closet. What's the worst you ever did in a class? The worst grade you ever got? Worst grade I ever got in a class. Um, I believe my worst grade would be um, my first year PhD, uh, first year, first semester PhD um, class in doing MATLAB. I got a uh, B minus, which in grad school is a borderline pass. 
um, because I had never done any uh, MATLAB or programming before, um, and the class essentially kind of assumed that you were already an expert in MATLAB. Um, and you know, the first year of grad school is already quite uh, quite difficult. Um, but um, I, for, for, for me, without having, without having a, any sort of computational background, that was particularly uh, a particularly rough class uh, for me, which is kind of um, ironic uh, now that uh, we're doing um, a good amount of RNA sequencing and uh, single-cell RNA sequencing. So my trainees are doing a lot of work in um, R now, which is uh, somewhat similar to, to MATLAB. And unlike um, um, things I did for my postdoc, you know, which is very much like cell biology, uh, functional assessments and transplantations, um, I actually don't understand all the things that they um, that they talk about um, in terms of how they're able to generate the data they're able to to generate, uh, which is uh, as a new uh, new investigator uh, is uh, still an experience I'm I'm trying to deal with. I got to tell you, be honest, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're a disgrace. I don't know how you got a faculty position with that type of... You must have had it expunged, you scumbag. All right, well, I'm taking that to pub here or somebody. Um, well, that, that's, that's a great thing about, um, about faculty positions. Nobody ever asked me for my transcripts. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you're right. I would be. Um, if people knew about my uh, B minus, I would be uh, destined to be a lab tech somewhere for the rest of my life. <laughs> hey, listen, you could do a lot worse than a lab tech. I have some of the smartest people <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that are sounds lab like techs. a great job to me if I didn't become faculty. I agree. <laughs> anyway, well, you made it somehow, and we're going to expose you to the world. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Dr. Millman. This is a nice talk, and. Uh, you know, we're going to keep abreast of your research. When this paper comes out, I can't wait to have a look. Maybe we'll invite you back on. Maybe a bit soon, but if it's big, and it sounds big, we may need to have you back on. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, or via email, info at StemCellPodcast.com, with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks for joining us for episode 132. You better watch out. Well, beta watch out. It's that time of year. You know who's coming. It ain't Dr. Milner. <laughs>